Is that on? Can you hear me? Good. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tolerating a guest preacher and the echo and uh, feedback. Are we okay? Okay. You're not? Okay. It's worse up here. That's good. Um, it was really fun to have Parker come up right away and start grilling me. Mosman, right? Wheaton, yes. Football. Neil, Nethery, yeah, it's like, that's crazy. That was so fun. So, yeah, Neil and I played together, and then we coached at Sterling College in Sterling, Kansas, and he kept coaching, and uh, the Lord called me a different way. So, um, it's really good to be with you, and one thing I want to do is just thank you for giving Matt some time off. Um, as uh, Jason said, I just got done spending 16 months uh, working on a research project uh, with the PCA, uh, a combined research project with the RBI office in Atlanta, which is Retirement Benefits and Insurance, which helps our pastors make sure that they have those things lined up and can help you, uh, the new session here, can help you make sure your pastor has those things lined up, so use them as a resource. And partnered with Trinity Seminary in Chicago, their Center for Transformational Churches did this research project into PCA pastors, um, and I was the project manager, um, and uh, there's a lot I could say. I won't. I'll just say thank you for giving Matt and April the time off, and uh, I'll be back in a couple weeks, um, and, and I really, I, I said to Matt, if you're having any trouble getting a whole month off, then let me know, and I'll come a second time to make sure that you get it, because it's so important to get that, so... Um, hopefully you can tolerate me for a couple weeks so that they can have a good rest. Um, I wanted to look today uh, with you at 1 Corinthians 13. We'll look at just the first few verses, but I'm going to read the whole thing. When you come as an unknown guest preacher, um, how do you know what to preach on? Um, you know, you try to do your greatest hits, right? You know, something that seemed to go well before, hopefully it'll work again. Uh, but not only that, something that uh, you hope will be universally applicable. And I think... I think this is something that we all need. I mean, we know that right now we're in the middle of um, a culture of divisiveness and, and fear that's only been intensified in the last 18 months. Between the election and racial tensions and the pandemic, um, our culture is strained and tested uh, at every turn. Um, and we know uh, that that doesn't stop at the doors of the church. It has come, come into the church as well. Um, I have a friend who did uh, a research project um, as part of his Doctor of Ministry degree. Uh, he was a church planter, and he did a study after his church planting experience of um, all the challenges that hit, hit church plants in the 7- to 12-year mark. And I tell you that not to scare you, um, but I tell you that to tell you that it's a phenomenon, that, that um, there's kind of this thing that happens where you have this goal of particularization and kind of having this independence, right? And then, and then it's, it's sort of a period after that of like, what's next and who are we and what are we doing? And there's some like, I thought it would be this and it's not and all sorts of things. And it's easy to get distracted from the goal. And so I hope my coming to talk to you a little bit about love, uh, which as we've already heard, two great commandments, it's essential will just remind you as you move into this next phase of life as a church, like to keep your eyes on the center and what's most important. Because this division and lack of love, it is the work of the enemy. He, he loves to see church plants get to that point of particularization, feel like they've arrived, and then start to have trouble. The enemy loves that. So we don't want to participate with that. We need love to prevail. So let's talk about it a little bit from 1 Corinthians 13. Just a couple reminders uh, for some of you, new for some of you, about 
uh, to whom this letter went. The, the church is in, in the city of Corinth, and at the time, Corinth was a place where many cultures and religions ran into each other because there were a lot of trade routes that went through Corinth. So it was a, a place of great diversity of cultures and religions. It was a place of great prosperity for many because of the trade routes, but also a place of great slavery for many because those who were prosperous uh, used slave labor to increase their wealth. And so there was this great mix of social strata in the city as well. It was a very uh, immoral place. There's a verb, uh, Corinthianize, basically. To live a life of debauchery means to Corinthianize. Or to Corinthianize means to live a life of debauchery, however you say that word and meaning. Um, and and the, the religious and the, the, the immoral combined in Corinth in the worship of Aphrodite and Apollo, where there was um, cultic prostitution going on uh, rampant in the city. And when Paul talks about the first time he went to Corinth, he says he went with much fear and trembling. So, you know, I think Corinth is a place that has a lot of parallels with our world today. Um, so I think that's important for us to understand as we dive into this letter. A little bit about the church as well. Um, and when I come back in two weeks, I'm going to stay in 1 Corinthians 13, so I won't do this again, all right? So I promise this is the one time I'll give you this background info. The church at Corinth is young very gifted and talented. Similar to a lot of church plants. Young, very gifted and talented. And the church at Corinth is divided by factions that claim to follow different leaders, by disdain for certain understandings and practices. You've heard, read chapters about food sacrifice to idols. That was one of the controversial issues that they were struggling with. They're divided by competitiveness about gifts. Who has the best gifts? What are the greatest gifts? And, and these class concerns that were in the city are also in the church. So the church at Corinth is in a city that's a mess and broken, bruised and broken by the fall, and it's a church that is a mess, bruised and broken by the, the fall. And Paul writes into this, and what he's saying throughout his letter is that he believes that what God has done and is doing in Jesus matters and helps even for people like them in a place like that. In the midst of the tensions and challenges, Paul would have them and us fix our eyes on Jesus and Jesus' call to the practices of love. So let me read this description of love from 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to start at the uh, end of chapter 12. After this long chapter where Paul has talked about all the gifts given to the people of God by the Spirit of God and all the ways to serve, then he says this, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is hyperbolic, uh, exceeding expectations way. I will show you, after all these gifts that we talked about, I'm going to show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Amen. I apologize, I forgot to have you stand for the reading of the word. I realized that halfway through, but I think it will still work. Let me pray for our time in the word together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your words, that we uh, do not have to remain ignorant, we don't have to wonder who you are, what it is that you're doing in the world, and how it is that we should respond to that. Um, thank you also, Father, that you have sent your spirit into the world, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming and indwelling us, and being in our midst, the very presence of God in our midst, so that we can understand, so that we can be changed. So come now, Holy Spirit, in power, and do your work among us through your word read and preached. Uh, drive into our hearts those things that we need to, to know and to believe so that we would live well in the world that you made. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I did RUF at the University of Nebraska for eight years, and when I lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, I'd have to go to RUF training twice a year, as you probably are aware of your RUF guys going there. Um, and so oftentimes I would fly out of Kansas City because it was a lot cheaper uh, to go from Kansas City to Atlanta than from Lincoln or Omaha to Atlanta. And it was just under a three-hour drive from my home in Lincoln to Kansas City, but then it was a direct flight. And so one time, I'd driven the almost three hours from my house to the remote parking lot at the KC airport, and I got out of my car, and I gathered my stuff, and, and I did this, and I was like, where's my wallet? So I looked in the car, didn't find it in the car. When did this again. <laughs> where's my wallet? Grab my cell phone, call my wife, Carrie, is there any chance that my wallet is sitting on the edge of the dresser? Yep, your wallet's on the edge of the dresser. Two hours and 47 minutes away. So, I grab my stuff, I get on the shuttle bus, and I go to the terminal. And I get up to the front of the line to check in, and she said, can I see your ticket? I said, yep, here's my ticket. Wasn't on my phone yet at that point. She said, can I see your ID? And I said, yeah, that's the thing. I left my ID at home. And she said, oh, that's no problem. The flight is delayed. You can just go home and get it. <laughs> I said, I live in Lincoln, Nebraska. It's three hours away, right? And this is post 9-11, right? You all, you all know how this goes, right? Here's the rule for airline travel. Your ID, you've got to have it. You've got to have it. What Paul is saying as he introduces this chapter about love is here's the rule for being the church of Jesus Christ. Love You've got to have it. You've got to have it. It is essential. Living the Christian life, you've got to have love. It is the still more excellent way. There's all these gifts, all these things you can do as the people of God. But the most excellent way is love. Of faith, hope, and love, it, love, is the greatest. This great poem to love, this whole thing, chapter 13, this great poem to love begins with a three stanza, beautiful, poetic, convicting meditation on the necessity of love, the absolute necessity of love. We've got to have it. So as we look at this first section, the first three verses, I just want you to think about three things. What is it? Why is it? And how is it? What is it? Why is it? And how is it? 
What is it? What I want you to understand is it is a new word. What Paul is introducing here is a new word for love, okay? So I'll get there in a minute. But really, the whole chapter is about what love is. And as soon as I say, what is love, you guys start getting that song in your head. And I apologize for that, so put that away. Let's come back. But as soon, the, the whole thing is about what is love. It's an extended description of the attributes, the facets of love. So you can't answer the question, and I'm not going to try to answer the question in full today without taking all that Paul says to heart. So you're going to have to do some of that work on your own. I'll come back in a couple weeks and help you a little bit. But you're going to have to take all of it and add it to what we start with today. But when he first starts, Paul introduces a new word for his audience. So when he says at the beginning, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, there was going to be a little bit of like, wait, what? what's that? What's that? Now, we're familiar with the word agape. We're familiar with it. We're, you know, churches are named agape church and so on. But that word is unknown to writers outside of the New Testament. And even, it's not a word found in classic Greek writers, nor is it in Acts or Mark or James, even in the scriptures. Um, it is, it, there's, a, there's the verb form is a little bit found, if I understand correctly what I read about this. The verb form, agapao, is a little bit known. But this noun form, making it into a noun, is something new in the New Testament. And so when what Paul is saying here is there's this new thing, agape, that you have to have. And he gets their attention, surprises them with this idea, this new love. So as we begin to think about what love is, biblical Christian love is, it helps us to think about the words that Paul could have used that already existed that they would have known that he chose not to use. So this helps us to understand what biblical Christian love, at least the kind he's calling us to here, is not. Okay, so one of the words is philanthropia, from which we get our word philanthropy. It literally means love of man, and it was the highest word used by the Greeks. But what it means, what it only means giving justice to another, or giving him who is entitled to it his full rights, which even seems less than how we use it now, which is kind of a generosity, right, a generosity to humankind. Uh, giving to good causes for the sake of humanity. Um, so we've even spread it a little bit. But even this broader sense um, of generosity is not what's in view here in 1 Corinthians 13, let alone the narrower sense of deserved treatment. Okay, That's one, way he, one word he could have used, treat people the way they deserve. That's not it. Another word he could have used is Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love. It's another biblical word. It's a little greater than philanthropia, but still only descriptive of appropriate affection or feeling for one who is a brother or possibly a good friend. So brotherly love, appropriate affection for the relationship is not what is in view here. And thirdly, eros, romantic love or desire, uh, even though this chapter is often read at weddings and often used in romantic context, romantic love is not what is in view in this chapter. Paul could have used any of those words, but he chose not to. He chose instead to coin a different word, and the other New Testament writers also use it, using and giving definition to a new kind of love. Why? Why? Because what God has done in Jesus demands and enables a new kind of love. This biblical love we are called to is not natural, it's not anticipated, it's not easy. So Paul has to coin a term to get people to pay attention to something new that the coming of Jesus demands and enables. And then he fills it in, okay, but first he introduces it, right? A new, a new concept. I'm talking about 
something new. But before he goes on to fill in the definition in the later verses, he wants to motivate. Okay, I'm introducing this new idea, but now I need to motivate you for why you should care about this. And how does he do that? Verses 1 through 3 are this great poetic writing that give us the feeling of the necessity of love. So that's our second point. Why is it? Why is love? And Paul tells us it's essential because by showing us the danger of acting without love. Look at what he says. Verse 1 again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You hear that? We have the great communication gifts, right? They just talked about this gift of speaking, uh, speaking in tongues from in the last chapter. And this, he, he, he ups, ups the ante here. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men, which means a, a supernatural gift to be able to communicate the gospel to people in other languages than the speaker already knew, right? If I can speak in the tongue of men, and, and he says, even of angels, right? let's ramp it up. If you can communicate the gospel to the angels, Wow, wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, it would. But if you have not love and you're doing so, you're just annoying noise, right? A clanging gong, a resounding cymbal. Sorry, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we, we can understand imagery. You know, in a, in a band, the gong or the cymbals have a place, right? At the right place at the right time, they add to it. But if it's the wrong place and the wrong time, it's an annoying noise. Or if you just hear, you know, if your kid has a pair of little cymbals and they walk around, anybody, anybody have cymbals at home? Don't, don't tell me. Oh, there you go. Back there, we got some cymbals at home. And you just walk around clanging, there's a point where mom and dad will be like, enough. <laughs> it's enough. Just put them away for a little while. So we can relate to that, but here's another. Paul is upping the ante a little bit even from that because in Corinth, gongs and cymbals were part of the cultic worship. They were part of the noise that was used to attract people to participate in temple worship there in Corinth. And so he's saying, you know how they use that, those sounds, to try to attract people to a false religion? If you're not speaking in love, it's just that kind of annoying noise, always in the background, always trying to distract, always pulling you away from God and the gospel. Speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love. It's just annoying noise. Words without love are just annoying because you, the speaker, or I, the speaker, without love, don't mean them for the good of the other. Better to speak a few words with love than millions of profound, eloquent, heavenly words even, without love. And we can get confused about this, and we need to hear what Paul is saying, echoing what Jesus said elsewhere. Speaking the truth is not necessarily love, as some will say. Some will say, I am loving you, I'm telling you the truth. No, not necessarily. You can speak the truth. You can speak in the tongues of men and angels. But without love, it's just annoying noise. Our words need to be spoken in love, honestly, with true care for the other. And we all know there's a difference. If we're honest with each other, we know that there's a difference between just speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love. And Paul says the difference is between words mattering and words that are just annoying sounds even though they may be truthful first way he says love is essential because without it our words are annoying nothing more than that but he's not done there he goes on verse two and if i have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if i have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love i am nothing 
I am nothing. Again, he lists these great faith expressions, prophecy, to declare what is true, either foretelling, uh, foretelling the future or, or telling people how to understand how the gospel applies right here and now. It's a great gift, this gift of prophecy, or a deep understanding and expansive knowledge that others could benefit from. Or he says, if you have all faith, right? Jesus talks about if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move, speak to this mountain and it, and it will move, right? Paul's saying, not just a mustard seed, all faith, you're full of faith. There's no doubt in you. Even with that kind of great expression of faith, great power to get stuff done for the kingdom, but without love, you are nothing. He says, I am nothing. Even though one has these things, he or she is nothing, a non-factor, like you don't exist. Paul is not playing around here. Like This is extremely stark, the way... He is speaking. Why? Well, Paul's emphasis in chapter 12 before and chapter 14 after is on using our gifts for the good of the whole, for the whole body to benefit and flourish. If we don't have love, we will use our gifts to serve or benefit or glorify ourselves, to try to make us important. And Paul says that by so doing, we actually show that we are nothing in the body and the kingdom of God because we're not actually serving the body or the kingdom of God. We're just trying to serve ourselves. He says, you can have faith to move mountains. Without love, it doesn't matter. Nothing. And then again, verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Again, great sacrifices. Give away all that I have. Remember the rich young ruler who, who walked away because Jesus asked him to sell what he had and give to the poor? Right? There, there's... There's biblical precedent for sacrificial giving, right? There's biblical precedent for martyrdom, for dying for our witness to Jesus. But if you give up all that you have, if you deliver up your body to be burned, but have not love, he says, I gain nothing. Like nothing. It doesn't, it, it gains nothing. How can this be? If you're not doing it out of love for someone else, then why are you doing it? It's, again, it's just for you to look good or to be remembered a certain way or to try to get something from God. And so it gains nothing. Do we want to say, really, Bart, nothing? Like, if I did that, somebody's getting the stuff I give away, right? And if I, if I set that example, somebody might be inspired by my example of self-denial, right? I would say if you did it to inspire somebody and if you gave it away for the benefit of somebody else, that would be love. There would be benefit to it. But if there's no love, this is what Paul's saying. If it's not done in love, you gain nothing. Agape, this new love that he's talking about, is essential. You've got to have it. By these three examples, Paul is effectively saying, no matter what your gifts or your acts of service, without love, they are nothing and you are nothing. He's not saying these things are bad or about irrelevant. Chapter 12 and 14, again, are all about spiritual gifts and the goodness of them exercised for the glory of God and the good of the church. But he is saying, as Phil Reichen put it in his commentary on this chapter, every spiritual gift must be used in a loving way. What matters is not how gifted we are, but how loving we are. What matters is not how gifted we are, but how loving we are. And, and Phil Reichen also emphasizes that this is the church to whom Paul writes. It's to Christians that he is speaking. And he says, 
rather than congratulating ourselves for all the things we do for God or looking down on people who don't serve God the way we do or thinking that we have it right and everyone else has it wrong, God is calling us to do everything for love. Otherwise, it is all for nothing. Nothing. Now you're like, yeah, Bar, you're beating the drum. You get it. I'm not beating the drum. Paul is beating the drum. Paul's the one who's given us these three powerful, if you do this, 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 without love, nothing. Why? Why is this the way of the kingdom? Because it's who God is. Because God is love. And it's, and it's, all, it's what we all need. We need to be loved. We need to love and we need to be loved. And here's the thing about this agape love that makes this harder. It has nothing to do with being deserved. That's why Paul's using a different word. The, the one is you deserve it because you have what's coming to you. The other is you deserve it because you're my, my good friend or you're my brother. The other is I'm romantically interested in you and so it just kind of happens. None of those are right. This is about not deserving. And our excuses for not loving all have to do with the deserts of the other, right? When we try to excuse ourselves for not loving, what do we say? She started it. She started, therefore I don't have to love. He'll probably misuse my charity if I'm generous towards him. I think, I think she's wrong on that issue. Therefore I don't have to treat her well. I'm upset with what he did. Therefore I don't have to love him. Our excuses for not loving all have to do with the deserts of the other. What Paul is saying is it has nothing to do with that. We are still supposed to love. All the time, if we have not love, we're annoying noise, nothing, we gain nothing. So we have to live asking, am I, as far as I know, acting with love, with these words, this exercise of my gifts, this act of service? And how do we know? Ask ourselves that golden rule question. Is this the way I want to be treated? And then don't bend over backward with mental gymnastics trying to say, well, yeah, I wouldn't mind if I was treated that way. No, no. I don't know if you do that. I do that. Right? Like, yeah, I know I was mean, but I know that's not the way, but no. Is this the way that I would like to be treated? As I've said to my four children over the years, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not as they did unto you. So that's my kids a bunch of times. Or do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not as they did unto you, or as you feel like you can justify doing because of what they did. Now, I didn't say that part to my kids when they were younger, but... It's a good thing to think about as well. I did and I still do say and exhort you to ask for yourselves, is this the way I want to be treated? And if the answer is no, don't do it. And if you've treated somebody in a way that you don't want to be treated already, then ask them for forgiveness. Go to them and ask them for their forgiveness. Why love? Paul spells out the danger of doing anything without it. It means nothing. It benefits no one. It makes you nothing. Okay, what is it? We're going to learn as we go forward, but it's this new kind of love. Why is it? It's essential. You have to have it. How is it? How is it that we can possibly do this? How is it that we cannot justify our lack of love? How is it that we can not treat people according to what they deserve, but rather treat them according to what is good and right for them? The way is the gospel, the wonder of being loved. Why would we do this? Why would we do this? Because we are so loved. That's the reason that we would do it, because we are so loved. And this word that Paul uses, agape, ties our love to God's love for us. 
We had our assurance from pardon, uh, assurance of pardon, or our words of encouragement from First John. And First John is uh, full of this idea of God's agape love shaping our being lovers in that agape way. So the principle is in First John 4:19. We love because He first loved us. And how did He love us? We already read that. This is great. This is in my notes, and I didn't know it was the words of encouragement. So uh, way to go, Matt, for putting that in there. First John 4, 9 through 11. How did he love us? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is agape love, love that is not about what is deserved, but loves first, and so does not what is deserved, but what is needed for the good of the other. Okay, we can understand this, but how then do we become people that do it? Well, John and 1 John talks about this as well. 1 John 3, verse 1, he says, Behold, what kind or what manner of love, agape, the Father has given unto us that we might be called children of God, and so we are. Behold, soak it in, let it fill your eyes and fill your heart. Behold, what manner, what kind of love, and this word is a great word, it, it could be translated from what foreign place. Like that's the meaning of this word. What kind of love is this? This is foreign, this is crazy, this is another kind of thing entirely. John says, behold, what crazy foreign kind of love the Father has, one translation says, lavished on us that we might be called children of God. And that is what we are by God's loving grace in Jesus. We are now children. See it. Look at it. Soak in it. It's a love that took enemies and made them children. A love that didn't go off of what was deserved, but what was needed. And so a love that sacrificed for the other. And beholding it, we would become those who sacrifice one for another. We would become those who love. And we have to, we have to focus on that love that's been bestowed on us so that we too can become lovers. It's essential. It is essential. So true confession, um, I actually got on that plane in Kansas City. Uh, she said, where's your ID? And I said, it's, it's at home. And she said, that's fine, you got time. It's delayed, go get it. I'm three hours away. She said, you have to have an ID. And I said, I don't have an ID. I said, I will do whatever it takes to get on that plane. You can go through my bags. I will be strip searched. Whatever I need to do, I have to get on that plane. And she said, well, I'll ask. So she literally went and asked TSA, and they said, bring his stuff. So I went in the back room. They didn't strip search me, but they did uh, take everything out of my bags, all the bags that I had, saw that there was nothing dangerous in there, and they let me get. Now, I don't know if that would have happened at any other airport um, Besides KC, I don't know. You know, there's a there's a little chill vibe there at the KC airport. I don't think it would have worked in Atlanta. But what I was able to do is show them that I didn't have anything dangerous. So even if I was dangerous, I didn't have anything dangerous. I wasn't able to do any harm, and so they let me get on the plane. And sometimes I think we think that we can live the Christian life like that without love, that we can somehow get away with it, that we can somehow talk our way into it if we have the right theology, if we, if, we, if we serve really hard, if we show the giftedness that God has given us, that we don't have to love because we're needed in other ways. But here's the thing. Paul says, if you don't have love, 
you are dangerous. You can't show I don't have anything dangerous. Paul says if you don't have love, you're dangerous. You'll hurt people. You'll hurt yourself. You can't fake it. It's essential to live with Christian love. We've got to have it. And Jesus, by his spirit, wants to produce us in it. So behold, take it in, resurrection. Take it in the what manner of love, this crazy for and outside kind of love that God has given to us, that we'd be called children of God, and then extend that love one to another and out into Madison and to the world. Let me pray that the Lord would help you to that end. Our gracious God, we are humbled and in awe of the love, this this love that is beyond expectation, this love that does not come naturally to us, this love that um, is, is you, it's who you are, and you've made it manifest among us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We praise you for that. We uh, lament the fact that we so quickly turn from love, we so quickly try to find ways to justify our lack of love. We ask that you forgive us for that. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with your power, that you'd fill us with the joy of being so loved by our triune God, that we truly become individuals in a community, a church that loves you and loves neighbor well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.